Robert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans themselves. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we're seeing is a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. America first. You know whose mantra that is. Meanwhile, Chinese President Xi Jinping is promoting a community of shared future for mankind. So if the American president calls your country a, well, I can say it, shithole, and the powerful head of what will soon be the world's largest economy offers a community of shared future for mankind, which are you more likely to work with? Uh, New York Times reports that uh, uh, China is where it's at now. The geopolitical momentum lays with Beijing, not with Washington. Our guest today, Derek Hero, writes, while chanting his mantra of America first, Donald Trump has so far followed policies that have only eased the way for the Chinese dragon to roar past Uncle Sam with the Russian bear not far behind. So while Trump regularly attacks China and Russia, perhaps unintentionally, perhaps not, Trump is the greatest promoter of China and Russia on the world stage. Our guest today writes that in reality, many of Trump's actions, statements, and tweets provide Beijing and Moscow with further opportunities to extend their influence and power. Well, Dilip Hero is uh, a Tom Dispatch regular. He wrote, After Empire, The Birth of a Multipolar World. And his new article is called, Donald Trump Offers a Helping Hand to Russia and China. Well, thanks for being with us. Trump seems to be putting all his foreign policy eggs into the military basket in an effort to bolster our alleged dominance of the world. How is this working with regard to China? Are you there? Yes, I'm here. I think essentially what I have to say, you see, if I can briefly summarize uh, the thesis of my book, After Empire, the birth of a multipolar world. Could you hear the question? Published by Nation Books in 2010. Quite, anyway, I'll just give a brief, uh, a broad uh, brush uh, description. See, um, with the collapse of the Soviet Union in December 1991, from 1992 until 2008, America was basically the sole superpower. It could basically do what it wanted to do the UN Security Council was almost an extension of the State Department. But the situation changed in August 2008. That was the time when there was a problem in Georgia, 
and they were, uh, you know, two what you may call uh, enclaves, and the Russians moved into that, that place, and uh, George W. Bush, who was the president, he did not do anything. He simply said, oh, and this is the actual quote, to be using bullying uh, and this kind of a coercion in the 21st century is not the way to conduct uh, foreign policy. And this was coming from George W. Bush, who attacked <laughs> Iraq uh, on you know, false basis. Anyway, so I think uh, because he did not take action, according to me, that was the birth of a multipolar world, i.e. there was no longer one power which could have its own say. And now as an extension of that particular thesis, and of course Obama you know, came to power, and, but Obama, unlike Bush, went for multilateralism. That is, if he wanted to do something, he consulted you know, allies and so on and so forth, and a good example in the case of Syria, when the Assad, President Assad used chemical weapons, he did not rush in and start bombing. He consulted uh, uh, the German leader, uh, uh -huh. Angela Merkel, sure. and he also discussed this with uh, the British Prime Minister, and the British Parliament refused to go along with it. And then uh, Obama said, let us consult the U.S. Congress about this. And then the public opinion showed two-thirds of people were against getting involved in Syria. So what I'm saying is that, in a way, uh, Obama accepted indirectly the rise of other powers. That yes. It was no longer one power doing ah. what it wanted to do. And now we have uh, Donald Trump. Yes. I'm afraid there's a basic problem, but it's a personality problem. Uh. Donald Trump is unable to connect the dots <laughs> because his uh, attention span is only as far as he can type 154 characters right. on his tweet, uh, 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 Twitter, and that's it. <laughs> so I'm afraid he is not able to see. On one hand, he's saying, oh, uh, Russia and uh, China are uh, uh, sort of competing with us. On the other hand, his actions are actually helping China right. and, of course, Russia as well to become more powerful. Good example, very good example. Uh, when Obama was president, along with the Chinese uh, president, both of them agreed that we will uh, be supporting Paris uh, you know, Climate Accord and we will really help that because uh, America is number right. one polluter, China is number two polluters, and that was leadership. What did the, uh, uh, Trump do? He said, no, uh, this is uh, against the U.S. Uh, uh -huh. uh, industry and so on and so forth. And you see, and so what happens in that vacuum, what has happened uh -huh. is that French president, uh, Emmanuel Macron, right. he was the one who held a summit on the second anniversary of the Paris Accord, the Climate Accord, and there were more than 50 leaders who attended, along with three very important uh, the rich people, yeah. Michael Bloomberg, uh, Bill Gates, yes. and the British uh, billionaire uh, Richard Branson, 
they screened, and Bloomberg pointed out that eight states in the USA are ignoring right. what Trump has, uh, has said, and they are going along supporting the you know, Paris Accord. Yes. And then he pointed out that these eight states in America are account for half of the national GDP. So what I'm saying is that here is Mr. Trump. If he is, uh, you know, uh, shall I say, for whatever reasons, withdrawing his leadership, then there are other people, other right. leaders to fill that in. And then what happened? Four weeks after that summit in Paris, Mr. Mac uh, President Macron, he went to Beijing. He didn't go to Washington, D.C. He went to Beijing. And uh -huh. he made the, and both of them said, yes, we support the Paris Accord. So I'm just giving an example that the uh, the gentleman who sits in the White House, yeah. who says America first, America first, he's saying America first, but actually his policies are making China first. It absolutely and, is. As you know, is the headline of the article that yes. you mentioned, which was on Tom Dispatch uh, you know, 10 days ago. And many Americans don't seem to care whether or not the world nations think highly of us in terms of global approval as measured by the Gallup organization, China is quickly ascending. Why should America care what the world thinks of us? Why can't we just, oh, be the big guys on the block anymore? Yeah, that, that's, that's true. But I think, you see, I'm sorry. If, I mean, I, I'm so full of the contradictions in the, the actual policies of uh, President sure. Trump that I just can't help. You see, sometimes he does things which are contrary to what is the official White House policy. Take one good example. Of course, lots of people may not remember this, but at one point, in June of last year, uh, the Saudis uh, and, and two other countries decided to have an economic blockade of a small neighbor called Qatar, Q-A-T-A-R. Yes. Qatar is the place where the USA has the largest military base, and from that particular base, the air force of the, of the Pentagon, they are hitting Islamic uh, State in Syria and uh, Iraq. Also, they are attacking Taliban in Afghanistan, and there are 10,000 uh, U.S. troops based there. Now, when... I mean, shall I say his friends in uh, Saudi Arabia, the uh, Prince Mohammed, he said, we are going against Qatar. And you know what? Immediately, within maybe 24 hours, uh, uh, what I call the Twitter-in-chief, he said, of, oh, when I was in Riyadh, I said, who are, who are doing the, uh, supporting the Islamic uh, radical fundamentalist right. terrorists? Ah, they said Qatar. Oh, so it's Qatar. It did not come to, into his small head, or maybe big head, but small hands. Yes. <laughs> that, uh, you, Qatar has the largest Pentagon's uh, base yes. in, the, uh, in the Middle East. It did not connect the two points, you know. It, and it, so, of course, uh, uh, the uh, American ambassador in uh, the capital Qatar. of Qatar, Doha, she yeah. sent off... Uh, her tweet to say, wait a minute, these are our friends. <laughs> so I'm just giving an example that, you know, a foreign policy is being run by somebody who has got some basic 
personal uh, problems. Oh, yeah. First of all, you know, he does not read briefings. No, he doesn't read anything. To just listen to people, what they say, he's very impatient. Yes. You have to speak, you know, in... Small words. In brief <laughs> and so on. And he very... So, by what he's doing, actually, uh, he's saying one thing, but what he actually doing is giving the counter... Yes. result of what his policy is supposed to be, America first. Let me ask you, I hope you can hear me now, Africa, what about Africa? It's a huge continent, very rich in resources and development opportunities. I wonder if you could compare how the U.S. is doing in Africa with regard to China, please. What is China doing in Africa, and how is that likely to go as it relates to the United States' interests? Yeah, that, yeah that's true. I think, the, <clears throat> excuse me, see let me put back the you know I mean if we are looking I mean, let's say we are looking at the domestic uh, policies I mean again it's the same person who has uh, power to do both domestic and foreign policies but there again let us say you know that he 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 also lacks vision I mean he doesn't have a vision he doesn't you know for example when Obama was president he has he had a vision what was the vision abroad we will uh, uh, push for democracy, human rights, and uh, uh, market economy. You know, and of course, at home to you know uh, raise the living standards of uh, people, and, uh, and you know, basically identify with those who are at the lower base of society. Now, he had a total vision. Uh, Trump doesn't have that vision. He he has some general basic idea. Ah. I want to reduce the uh, tax on corporations, okay, because he is a corporate man himself, so corporation tax is reduced and so on and so. But and, ah, I want to reduce the regulation, so he uh, from federal government. So, see, these are just, uh, you may say, some ideas, but they don't, uh, and they are not coherent uh, visions. Yes. They are not, and I'm not saying ideology. He has no particular ideology except to remain in power. But you see, and that is a basic problem, not only in terms of his foreign policy, but also domestically. You know, uh, you know, his. Uh, uh, I, I, mean, I explained, of course, the taxes on corporations have been cut. You see, and that, of course, would mean more uh, deficit. Yes, uh, greater deficits uh, for sure. Federal deficit. That means they have the government had to raise. Uh, send more U.S. bonds, and you know, and that thing will go up a little. Yeah. So, and that will then lead to raising interest rates and so on. So he's not able to go uh, go beyond his uh, his tweets. No, he can't. And can you hear me, please? C- can you hear me, Dilip Hero? Can you hear me? You're in London, I know. I wanted to ask you about Africa. Can you? Are you hearing the question? Ah, oh, clearly this is not working. Well, I'm sorry, people. <laughs> he has a lot to say, and I wanted to talk about uh, Trump's policy, if he is indeed uh, intentionally helping China and Russia, or if it's just mere incompetence. I don't know. Well, I, I regret that the connection, obviously, is not good. Uh, our guest today, for this part anyway, has been Dilip Hero, uh, who is author of After Empire, The Birth of a Multipolar World, his most recent and 36th book is The Age of Aspiration, Power, Wealth, and Conflict in Globalizing India. And we're trying to talk about his article, 
Donald Trump offers a helping hand to Russia and China. Uh, I wonder, let me see if you can hear this. With Trump's clearly apparent admiration for Russia's Putin simultaneous with his verbal degradation of, uh, degradation of China and Russia, do you think it's intentionally helping China and Russia, or is it just incompetence? One last try at a question. Could you hear me? Apparently not. All right. Well, thank you very much. I guess uh, we'll have to head out of there. I just think that, uh, well, that's unfortunate. <laughs> He's written about, and, and China has this one belt one road initiative, which is helping Africa. I mean, after uh, Trump calling African nations, as he did, and I hate to say this on the air, but the president said it, after calling so many African nations shitholes, here is an opportunity for America and for China that is just huge. And we are blowing it. I mean, can you imagine if you're in Africa, are you going to buy a John Deere tractor or a Chinese tractor? I mean, it's just unbelievable. And there's so many resources there. There's so much development going on. China is helping Africa as much as they can, and it's making a difference. They're building infrastructure, railroads, electric systems. Uh, and meanwhile, Trump is just putting all his eggs into the military domination basket, which is just astounding to me. Uh, on the, you know, he handed the keys to uh, the car to China on the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, and, I would, you know, we could ask about the Middle East. I regret that uh, it, the connection didn't work. But here's the Middle East, where Russia is very much involved in the Middle East, and the U.S. has just taken a, a side, a hard, hard side, on the side of the right wing within Israel and Syria, Iraq, Iran. Russia is helping Iran. Iran is strong. Iran is a big, big player in the area. It's a huge nation, much, much bigger than Iraq. And Iran is somewhat helping the people of Yemen resist the Saudi war on them, which is a, a war that's causing terrible famine and disease, which the U.S. is supporting. The people know that the bombs are made in the United States that are being dropped by the Saudi government. Uh, and they look to Iran for some help there. And Russia is playing it really smart there. Does Trump intend this? We all know he likes Putin quite a bit, and he'd, he'd like to emulate Putin. But is he really trying to help him? I mean, the question is, if he's trying to help Russia make them stronger, help China make them stronger, what does that say about his patriotism, quite frankly? Does he even care about the damage that he's doing to these currently United States. It's it's amazing. Could it be mere incompetence? I know H.L. Mencken said many years ago, uh, never ascribe evil intent where mere incompetence is the likely culprit. And again, I regret that uh, the signal was really poor. We couldn't come through there. Uh, and uh, Dilip Hero is uh, the guy we're trying to get here. And uh, well, I'll play a little music here relative to China. It's called Sketches of China. And then we'll be back with uh, Julia Conley talking about uh, President Trump's, another screw-up that he's doing, uh, his uh, infrastructure plan and what it's doing just at the environmental level. Infrastructure could be something that's really good for the environment. But what he's doing, 
Uh, it may be just a scam designed to keep the U.S. stuck in a dirty and destructive past. Stay tuned. We're going to play this old Jefferson Starship song called Sketches of China. Stay with us, please. Let me tell you about a man I knew Wrote the death and the breath of China On a horse that he grew himself From the bark of a tree on mainland China And he had a time Yeah, he had the time of his life in China He carried strife and harmony To all the people on the mainland Yes, he did
Yeah, from an old Jefferson Starship album, Baron Von Tollbooth and the Chrome Nun, Sketches of China. And uh, sorry about that, not working out on that last one. Interesting topic, but hey, every now and then electronics fails us. Well, uh, Julia Conley, are you there? We hope this is a good connection. Yes, hi. Oh, good, good. Much easier. She's here in the uh, good old, question mark, United States up in Maine. Well, we're going to switch topics here, but still talk about uh, Donald Trump. He does provide a lot of stuff to talk about, doesn't he? Well, one big reason why Franklin Roosevelt is remembered as one of our greatest presidents is his New Deal. It put thousands of unemployed people to work, improving America's infrastructure. That's about the last time our roads, bridges, water, and electric systems were improved. Today, many decades later, guess what? They're crumbling. Many Americans have been clamoring for a serious federal commitment to rebuilding our infrastructure for decades. Now the White House has released what they're calling the Trump Plan to Rebuild America. As our guest today, Common Dreams staff writer Julia Conley reports, green groups were among the first to declare fierce opposition to the Trump administration's infrastructure plan, citing concerns over the proposal's lack of regard for the environmental implications. End of quote. As she reports, Ben Schreiber of Friends of the Earth called the plan nothing more than a scam to roll back environmental and health protections. And from my read of the official press release from the White House, oh, that was lots of fun to read, I assure you, the real goal is to increase the profits of a few polluting industries at the expense of not only the environment, but of local and state taxpayers. And we're not so much going to focus on uh, what it would do to local and state taxpayers. It would increase their taxes, this Trump plan, uh, saving the federal government from spending it. The Trump plan stands in very stark contrast to what Bernie Sanders has offered to reimagine Puerto Rico. Bernie Sanders' proposal would invest $150 billion in creating a new environmentally sustainable electric system based on solar and wind. Uh, Guess what? They have a lot of solar and wind in Puerto Rico, but the old one relies on oil and it was pretty much wiped out by the hurricanes. Uh, that's what uh, Bernie's proposing to create a lot of new jobs, building environmentally sustainable new uh, system. And it's got a lot of support. Now, here's Trump. After looking through the White House document, I would have to agree with the climate campaigners, Julia Conley Sites, who say the plan will serve as a giveaway to corporations looking to bypass environmental reviews to quickly complete projects, including those that involve fossil fuel carrying pipelines. It's beyond belief, but of course, it's reality. Instead of investing in what we need for the future, is the Trump infrastructure plan a scam designed to keep U.S. stuck in a dirty and destructive past? Well, that's the title of her article. Julia Conley is a staff writer at the Progressive News website, which I highly recommend, commondreams.org. She began her journalism career on PBS's weekly news analysis show, Bill Moyers, Moyers Journal. Good man works with some good people. She also worked for over two years as a producer on Al Jazeera, America's daily news broadcast, and later on documentary films focusing on issues including the roots of the American opioid crisis and the history of white supremacy in the U.S. She's also written for a quarterly women's magazine called Women's Thing. That's a great 
resume. Good introduction. Well, again, Julia Connolly, thanks so much for being with us. The White House document says regulatory barriers that needlessly get in the way of infrastructure projects will be removed. Permitting for infrastructure projects will be streamlined and shortened. Uh, leaving the White House document. That's a very interesting choice of words. Needlessly get in the way, streamlined and shortened. What concerns does this raise for current traditional environmental protections? What what happens to environmental review under the Trump streamlining plan? Yeah. um, So under the current guidelines, Congress, like, for example, uh, pipelines are a big part of this. And Congress has to authorize any big pipeline projects that would cut across national parks. Um, and this infrastructure plan would take that power out of Congress's hands um, and would allow the Interior Department and Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke to approve those projects, so putting it all in the Interior Department's hands. And as I'm sure you're aware, Zinke has a history of not being particularly friendly to national parks. He's been wanting to shrink them. Um, and he likes to prioritize pipeline projects. So I'm sure that he's very excited about this development, but it's not good for our national parks or the environment. It's not good for um, indigenous communities that live in those areas. Um, so, and it's really taking the power out of the hands of people who, you know, Congress is elected to represent people in the states. Ryan Zinke was appointed by Trump and um, doesn't seem as concerned with representing um, just regular people. And and what is uh, Ryan Zinke's past, and what is he doing now? Refresh my memory, please. He is the Interior Secretary, oh, right. and um, he comes from Montana. He was connected with um, the, the small uh, energy company that was given the contract to redo the, um, the electric grid in Puerto Rico, as you mentioned. Um, so he has sort of ties to energy, and he's very big on, like Scott Pruitt at the EPA, very big on kind of like acting as an environmental steward rather than protecting the environment. Um, so he's very, you know, not friendly to the national parks and very friendly to the energy industry, which would be creating those pipelines. Um, <laughs> and then the proposal also says that for major infrastructure projects like bridges and roads, um, the environmental review that happens for those projects can take no longer than 21 months and has to be handled by just one federal agency, um, which is supposedly in the interest of saving time and money. Um, And the reviews, you know, these reviews can take years to complete, and they do involve a lot of different agencies currently because there is a lot of involved in an environmental impact review. Um, They have to figure out how a new project could affect endangered species or a fragile habitat. Um, They have to do a full scientific analysis of how drinking water and air quality in the area could be affected. So they do take a long time, but um, green groups say that that, you know, is for a good reason. There's a lot to consider. Um, And green groups are concerned that, you know, this re, rethinking of how these environmental reviews will take place, that it's just sort of a handout to oil and gas yeah. companies that have always had their pipeline projects held up by environmental concerns. And I, I've um, wondered, I, I've kind of wondered, you know, looking at 
some, I mean, back in the 1930s when Franklin Roosevelt did his New Deal projects, big dams, uh, creating, you know, new sources for electricity, things like that, they would not have passed today's environmental reviews, I'm sure. Nobody even thought about the environment back then. But is there, might there be ways of, I mean, we want the infrastructure to be improved. People need the work. The work needs to be done. Can it be done, do you think, uh, that would not upset uh, the, the people who care about the environment? You know, that, that can they be done environmentally, sustainably? Yeah, I mean, the, the White House document um, sort of claims that, the, you know, this will help to develop innovative projects. Um, and if that were true, it could, you know, there's the possibility of, like, developing solar power um, and wind power, um, but that isn't really mentioned in, in this infrastructure document. There doesn't seem to be any interest in innovating in huh. that way. Well, I find it fascinating that the, the White House document actually claims the plan will develop, quote, innovative projects, end of quote. How do, I mean, how, how can they say that? In what way are they, they innovative? Or, I mean, how can they say that? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, it's definitely another detail that environmental groups are taking a lot of issue with because the projects that this plan is going to help to speed along and to sort of get to a yes as quickly as possible for them, um, they're really the opposite of innovative in terms of what we know about newer forms of energy production and how other economies have started to look towards those. Um, So if you're creating a plan that makes it easier to build pipelines that carry uh-huh. you know, fossil fuels in our national parks, it seems much more like you're relying on the energy uh-huh. production of the past. Um, and then meanwhile, you know, other countries like China are, are leading the way on projects that actually are mm-hmm. innovative. Like I think last year China had, they had already hit their 2020 goal for mm-hmm. how much solar power they uh-huh. were using. So um, It's not just that the infrastructure plan makes it easier for energy companies to pollute the environment. It's also that, you know, we'll be be building these pipelines to carry fossil fuels around the country and continue making us one of the biggest emitters of carbon while other countries are looking around and saying, you know, like, what can we do to change how we've been doing things now that we know all that we know about, about how those projects are harmful? Uh, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest is Julia Conley, who writes for CommonDreams.com, uh, is it? Uh, yeah. Uh, dot .org. .org. CommonDreams.org. <laughs> We're talking about the Trump infrastructure plan, just the environmental aspect of it. And so the I wonder which specific interests make out well. As we mentioned, the oil interests make out very well. And it doesn't have to be that way. And as I said on the previous half hour on this show, uh, as H.L. Mencken said, never ascribe evil intent where mere incompetence is the likely culprit. I wonder, could this be, well, mere incompetence so that Trump and his uh, administration, such as it is, that's all they're familiar with and they can't think of anything else? Or do you think, is there any reason to think that that the oil companies, the the traditional major polluters, actually have been involved in in making this. I mean, it certainly serves their 
financial interest. Do you think it, it could be just that they don't know any better or any any reason to suspect that they, they actually uh, are working hand in glove with the, the polluting industries on the infrastructure plan? Yeah, um, I haven't seen anything about the industry having to do with the drafting of the infrastructure plan, but I do know that, yeah, sure we just, see that. Like, just last month, the American Petroleum Institute, which is like the uh, biggest oil and gas lobbying group in the country, um, they have been very active in lobbying to make it easier for companies to uh-huh. build pipelines quickly um, and in as you know, many part of, parts of the country as possible. They... They gave a speech at like their annual meeting where there were senators and representatives present uh-huh. and told them, you know, we don't need money. We're a very rich industry, but please remember that our industry, our industry, when you know considering any infrastructure plan, because uh-huh. um, this has to go through Congress now. So uh-huh. they specifically asked senators, you know, just remember that pipelines are part of infrastructure and. Um, you know, specifically asking for a faster permitting process so that mm. they can get pipelines built as fast as possible. Um, mm. And I know they've also tried to get, that same group has tried to get reforms at the uh, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission um, to keep it from blocking pipeline projects. So they're definitely, it looks like they're getting a lot of what they want and what they've wanted for a long time with this plan. Um, and they've definitely been involved. Uh, I'm sure. And I I can't help but think about the temporary success of stopping that pipeline in uh, South Dakota. So many people came from all over the country and and stopped it. But uh, it it appears that that was a stimulus to make these guys even more aggressive, more determined to eliminate the possibility of actual democratic participation in such things. Uh, fascinating. I'm not, I'm not surprised. They want to just ram it through everywhere, the oil industry. And, uh, you know, we, we should just serve them and trust them, never mind them serving <laughs> the national good. Now, many Americans have long called for a new commitment to infrastructure as one of the goals being creation of useful jobs. Greenpeace spokesperson Molly Dorozensky said in your article, Trump's, Trump's infrastructure bill is disguised as a jobs bill, but it's yet another attempt by the administration to force through pipelines that threaten land, water, and indigenous sovereignty. What, tell us about this best aspect. What, what jobs are created? What kind of jobs might be being overlooked or bypassed in this? Let's, what, what's the real uh, reality of, of job creation in this infrastructure bill as compared to, uh, you know, jobs that might be created building uh, solar collectors and uh, other environmentally sustainable projects? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely a situation where, you know, like, sure, people will get some construction jobs building pipelines and overseeing the construction of pipelines and other projects. But in the long run, you know, those projects will leave us behind while other countries are innovating and seeing renewable energy as the job creator that 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 really is. Um, I know that in 2016, the solar industry in the U.S. employed 260,000 people, which was up 25% 25% from the year before, and there's no reason to think that that wouldn't stop growing if the Trump administration wasn't so against innovation and solar power. 
Um, and then, you know, the tariffs that Trump just announced a few weeks ago are expected to kill about 23,000 jobs in the U.S. Um, so solar power could be one of the fastest growing job sectors in this country, but the infrastructure plan treats the industry sort of, you know, it's like it doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, so a lot of jobs that will be created by the plan will be ones that aren't focused on the future. Um, you'll have a job now maybe working on a pipeline and then that job will end and, you know, you'll be contributing to the U.S. really being left behind as other countries are moving forward. Mm. Um, and then, oh, and then also the plan proposes paying for, so the federal government's contribution to this plan is $200 right. billion. Yes. And um, the rest of it will be taken care of through the states and local governments. Um, and they're planning to raise that $200 billion by making cuts over 10 years to um, the transportation sector. So that would likely lead to cutting jobs for Amtrak, which yeah. is actually in need of more safety measures oh, yeah. after several train crashes recently. Really? Um, and then also the Army Corps of Engineers is expected to lose a lot of funding, which is responsible for flood protection. And um, so those are all part of the infrastructure, too. So it's sort of cutting parts of our infrastructure that work for our country and could work better um, in order to make things easier for the oil and gas industry. It still continues to amaze me that there are, I mean, look, you're right, looking at the railroads, some mm -hmm. people say, well, it doesn't work, let's just eliminate it. The, gov the government should be help shouldn't be helping them at all. What so the 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 proposal is for the federal government to invest about two hundred billion dollars over what ten years, and what what would the total cost be like something like a trillion dollars? Yeah, they're hoping they're hoping to spend two hundred billion dollars and have it turn into a one point five trillion dollars um, with the other money coming from states and local governments. Oh, great. So <laughs> local taxpayers will see their taxes going up even more, the people who can least afford it. And I find it fascinating that Trump is talking about $200 billion for the entire 50 states, whereas uh, Bernie Sanders was talking about $150 billion just for Puerto Rico. And mm -hmm. that would make sense. It's a good investment. And, and you know, people say, well, you got to run government like a business. Well, any business knows you have to invest prudently to have a prosperous future. Uh, so $200 billion from the federal government, and that's kind of sneaking around too, whereas uh, raising taxes from the rest of us. And I see something uh, in this uh, uh, White House proposal called private activity bonds. That sounds clever, and I wonder what they mean. And, you know, and uh, Trump has long been for the privates doing things that the public should that the common good is about the right. you know the public money. What is a private activity bonds? What can you tell us about what these things are? It sounds suspicious, I must say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they are. Um, they're tax exempt bonds that are sold by or on behalf of the state and local governments to attract private investors for different types of projects, um, and they're used for things that do have you know, some benefit for the public. They're, they're owned by a private entity, but they have benefits for the public like, like airports, affordable housing, um, hospitals, nursing homes. Uh -huh. um, so the infrastructure would create new uses for those bonds, like um, 
they want to, they basically want to apply those bonds to the whole infrastructure. Um, so the bonds could be used for beneficial things, but it's sort of a form of that public-private partnership, and it results in part of parts of our infrastructure, which is really supposed to be for everyone. It's supposed to be a public good run by, you know, the country, um, and it's, they'll be built by, you know, private entities yeah. just in order to save the government money. So it's just kind of like not what a democratic government is supposed to do. <laughs> <laughs> what a quaint idea, democratic government. <laughs> and, you know, we've had municipal bonds for a long, long time, and they generally work pretty well. People invest, they're tax-exempt, and it provides low-interest funding for these projects that, that help, you know, the municipality or the state. But this is a little bit different because uh, the private interests benefit directly. So, again, who's working for whom? If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We're talking with Julia Conley of CommonDreams.org. And she's written an article, The Trump Infrastructure Plan, a scam designed to keep U.S. stuck in a dirty and destructive past. So it seems there has been a rather consistent pattern in the Trump administration of undermining every federal agency's mission. I mean, the basic theory seems to be, hey, let's let the fox guard the hen house, defunding and privatizing everything from education in the environment. One of the talking points for the White House for the infrastructure plan is to establish a one agency, one decision structure for environmental review. It will, according to the document, eliminate certain redundant and inefficient provisions in environmental laws. I, I wonder who gets to decide what is redundant and what is inefficient? Who gets to make those decisions? What, what do you make of this uh, eliminating redundant and inefficient provisions in environmental laws? This is interesting language, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think it definitely is, as you said, another example of the Trump administration sort of robbing government agencies of you know, their purpose and the whole point that they exist. Um, and the one agency, one decision rule means that it just means that one lead agency will be in charge of carrying out the 21-month process of doing the environmental review. So, you know, generally the government agencies will confer with each other, like the EPA will confer with the Transportation Department and other agencies, and this one agency, one decision rule is kind of playing into the idea that, you know, government working together in that way is what causes a lot of delays. And in reality, there have been, you know, multiple studies done that have shown that environmental reviews themselves are not really what cause delays in building infrastructure. There's, you know, there's funding problems, bureaucracy, there's, you know, there are organizational breakdowns the way there can be with any big project. But, you know, there's this idea that, like, making sure a new highway won't ruin, you know, the species of an endangered animal or won't, you know, cut across an area that it shouldn't cut across, that that specifically is causing this huge delay. And that isn't, that's just not true. That's not, you know, that's a necessary part of making, you know, infrastructure and creating projects. But that, you know, doing that kind of due diligence is not what causes, you know, unnecessary delays. Right. <laughs> oh, it, it just it is astounding to me. What about uh, the number of jobs created? What do you hear about comparisons between 
a Bernie Sanders-type infrastructure project and the Trump proposal just in terms of the number of jobs created. I know we went over this a little bit before, but people, you know, there are still people who need work, and there's a tremendous amount of work to be done. Uh, What do you think about comparisons between a Bernie Sanders-type project looking to the future and Trump proposal just in terms of number of jobs created? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Trump, the actual document that they released doesn't have a specific job number. Um, it's much more vague than you would expect since he has promoted this as a job creator the entire time, you know, like right. since he was campaigning. Um, so I know that he has promised, like, thousands of jobs. Um, it doesn't have an actual hard number, but, you know, Sanders has proposed the Rebuild America Act is the name of his infrastructure plan, uh-huh. and that would invest $1 trillion over five years, um, which seems like, you know, a much bigger number and seems like a much more realistic number for, you know, redoing the infrastructure of a huge country. Um, and, you know, he says specifically that that should create 13 million jobs that would really help to modernize our infrastructure um, and put us more in line with parts of the world that spend far more of their GDP on infrastructure. Um, we only spend about, I think it's 2% of our GDP on infrastructure, while you know European countries and China spend like two to four times that. Um, they really treat it as something that's important and you know that is a job creator. Um, so the jobs created by Sanders' plan would help to modernize our railroads, as we were talking about, and move towards an electricity grid that would accept um, renewable energy sources. So it is definitely a much more forward-looking plan and much more of an investment in, you know, in American workers and in, in our infrastructure in general. And, you know, I mean, Europe, China, Russia they're all doing a lot better economically than we are right now. I mean, right now the jobs, you know, the unemployment is down, but still they are moving ahead and they're, they're growing fast. And it seems like the Trump plan is uh, specifically keeping us locked in the past. Well, so there's the Rebuild America Act that Bernie Sanders has proposed, and I'm not sure what this Trump plan to rebuild America is, is called. Maybe that's what it's called, uh, the White House plan to rebuild America. What can what's the status of both of these now? They still have to go through the House and the Senate, correct? And what can people do? I like people to have a sense of optimism that we can actually participate, and we can. So, what would you suggest, Julia Conley, that people can do? And what what's the language that they need to have to communicate about this plan or that plan? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, uh, it definitely. I think that this Trump's plan has sort of an uphill battle in Congress. Um, he was That's just good. meeting with members of Congress yesterday and sort of selling this plan to them. Um, but I would say that, you know, calling members of Congress and reminding them that specifically, like especially with the, the change from having Congress approve pipeline projects in national parks, which seems like something that people in any state would want you know, you would want your senator or your representative to have a say in that rather than the Interior Department where, you know, you don't even necessarily, a lot of people don't even necessarily know the top people in the Interior Department and they're making these decisions now. Um, so I think just reminding members of Congress that 
you know, we elected you to make decisions like this, okay. and we want to keep those decisions in your hands and not have them just in this one department um, in Washington. Um, and I'm sure that that's something that a lot of members of Congress could get behind. Um, and then, and the, so in terms of the name of Trump's plan, the only name that I've seen is just rebuilding infrastructure in America. So I yeah. guess people could use that term. Um, and then for Bernie Sanders' plan, just to, I think, just remind members of Congress that, you know, we should be looking forward and we should be looking more at plans that, you know, mention, at least mention renewable energy um, and, and acknowledge that it's something that other parts of the world are doing and that it's something that we could really benefit from. Um, so that's the Rebuild America plan. Um, and what's the timetable on this? Do you know? Um, let's see. I know it always takes longer than one would expect to get through yeah. Congress. And it's also true that, you know, the petroleum industry and the other dirty fuel industries have a lot of money, and and members of Congress are always looking for money for their campaign coffers, but they what the money is needed for is to get votes. And we still, we the people, still have the votes. So... If people call, write, email, whatever, they're members of Congress, it absolutely matters. They, if they get a lot of calls and, and concern about this or that, it really does matter. You can make a difference. And, you know, the, the polluting industries don't necessarily always get their ways. Mm-hmm. So we are, we are not without hope here. There's still time to turn down the, uh, the White House plan, turn up the Bernie Sanders plan, which has a lot of support, actually, from other uh, Democrats in Senate. Much to right. my pleasure, it's it's still entirely possible to make it better. We can participate in making mm-hmm. a better future. We are, right. after all, trying to keep democracy alive. So people can, uh, I, I, I like reading commondreams.org, always good stuff on there that can be uh, useful for the future. Thank you so much, Julia Conley, for being with us, and uh, we'll talk to you again sometime. Thanks for doing the research, too. Thank you so much. All right. And this is a song called Oil by uh, Jeff Beck from his most recent album. It's called Oil, That Sticky, Messy, Dirty Stuff. Thanks for listening. And thanks for being involved.